And we are back here. Yet again, I'm pushing the A. I'm Will. We're here somewhere in the 1900s. It's been a, it's been a long time since we last talked. Check the date, it was December 14th. December 14th, Doug Jones had just been elected to the US Senate. Isaiah Thomas, still a Cleveland Cavalier, if that's your cup of tea. Emoji Movie was not out on Netflix yet, which was, um, that was really the big event that's happened in the last few months, in my opinion. You should all go check it out. Best hour in 30 minutes of your life. You guys wanna get to some A-push? We are starting with chapter 27 here in this mini unit test that Maureen has presented to us all right in the middle of this paper. Just, just loving it. Title of chapter is Empire Expansion. You guys want to get to it? Let's get to it. So, the main theme of this chapter is that the United States realizes that there is a part of the world that is not the United States come the late 1800s. The U.S. has all these farmers, and they have a lot of them, and they're all looking out the world, and there's a lot of money in the country, there's a lot of people in the country, there's unrest, and the key phrase of the time is expand or explode. There's all this built-up stuff, and they have to release all of it somewhere because they're running out of places to give in the United States. Um, there's also this new phenomenon called the Yellow Press, um, and that's sort of stoking the want for foreign adventure. Uh, missionaries are already all over the place. There's also this idea of American superiority. Um, wasps are sort of saying, hey, let's spread our religion to these backwards countries. Henry Cabot Lodge says that the earth, Henry Cabot Lodge being a senator, uh, says that the earth belongs to the strongest and he's really implying um, the United States is the strongest. Um, the United States, and by the United States, of course, I mean Europe already is going for Africa. Japan, Germany, and Russia have all gotten concessions from China. Um, and the United States wants similar concessions from China. They want similar, they don't want colonies, but they certainly want to expand. Cap Captain Alfred Mahan um, writes the influence of sea power upon history. Um, which basically gives Americans the impression that if you can control the sea, you can control the world. So the United States then goes and builds their brand new big steel navy um, for this sort of arms race that is coming up. They're also thinking, if we're going to have this big navy, we need somewhere to put it. So this idea of an Atlantic to Pacific Canal, i.e. what's going to be known as the Panama Canal in a few years, is coming to the forefront of their minds. James G. Blaine, who's the Secretary of State at the time, comes up with the big sister policy, which is let's improve our relations with Latin American countries and get them involved in our economy. Um, in 1889, there is the Panama Conference, and by the Panama Conference, I mean the Pan-American Conference uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, the United States also goes to a couple of near wars, and by goes to a couple of near wars, I mean they nearly get stuck in a couple of wars, one with Germany over Samoa, um, in New Orleans, a few Italians are lynched. The United States nearly goes to war with Italy before paying up. There are tensions with Chile, of all places, after two sailors, Americans, die in a port. Um, the U.S. is a little worried that Chile might attack the West Coast, so Chile decides to pay up and just avoid all of that. Um, the United States and Canada, if you can believe it, argue about seal hunting. There's also this great... Um, screw the British 
atmosphere in the country right now where no one is happy with our friends across the pond. There's this crisis uh, regarding a jungle boundary between British Guinea, 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 Guinea pig, I'm guessing Guinea is not the pronunciation, it's Guinea, and Venezuela. Um, there's gold found and people are very concerned about this. So Cleveland, who was in office at the time and only his Secretary of State, preached the Monroe Doctrine, and they say, also, don't mess with the West. This is our territory. So it looks like heads are about to butt regarding this line. Um, the British are like, we don't care what the Monroe Doctrine says. It's only as strong as you are. Throwback to chapter... 15 or something like that. Um, the United States say, okay, we're going to draw a line, and if you cross it, we'll defend it. Um, then the rest of the United States starts freaking out because they do not want to go to war with Britain. So the people in the state offices say, we'll draw the line, we'll defend it. The president says this, and the American people are like, no, 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 stop, 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 stop. Um, and at the same time, the British sort of say, okay, we have this problem in South Africa. We're going to chill out on this. Grover Cleveland says, okay, fine, I'll chill out on this. And so then they just get uh, people to arbitrate it. I believe it is some Latin American powers. Um, no, actually, they just let someone random arbitrate it. Don't know who. Joe Smith from Iowa, I believe. Don't don't write that. That was a joke. Um, so they arbitrate the line. They actually rule in favor of the U.S., I believe. Um, and this idea of the British wanting to sort of be nice to the Americans and let them have things so they can be friendly with the Americans uh, is called patting the eagle's head, which I think is a cute way of calling it. What's next is not cute. There's this question of Hawaii. Hawaii. Um, it's, it's, uh, that's a brutal mispronunciation of it mocking someone activism kids know um, and it's been used as a shipping station as early as the 1820s there are already missionaries there uh, there's a sugar boom there and the United States sees it as their border to the far west even though they don't really call it that um, but internally that's how it's seen in 1840 they basically put out a statement and they say Hey, we don't own Hawaii, but you also don't either, but we're closest to Hawaii, so just stay away from it. Uh, in 1887, the United States negotiates with the Hawaiians to get Pearl Harbor. Since the first missionaries have arrived, the native population has gone to one-sixth of its original size. Um, so to do all this field work that the large sugar industry now, that's now blossomed on the island requires, a lot of Asians have to be brought in. Uh, specifically sort of East Asians, a lot of Japanese people. Um, and there's also this question of, in 1900, is Japan going to protect its citizens that are in... Hawaii is its independent entity, though the U.S., the writings on the wall that the U.S. is sort of very present there. Is Japan going to go... What measures is Japan going to go to to protect this land? Also in 1900 is the McKinley Tariff, um, which leads to a complete and utter crash of the sugar market. So the planters say, you know what? We don't want to be affected by this tariff. Please let us in, United States. Um, the queen, whose name I will butcher, but it starts with an L, says no. Um, we're going to let the natives control this. So in 1893, 
the white citizens of the area, as well as some U.S. troops revolt under this unauthorized order from the minister from the U.S. in Honolulu. Um, and he said, the Hawaiian pear is ripe. Let's pick it. They send an annexation treaty to the Senate really rushed. Then that's about when Harrison uh, is out of office and Cleveland enters, and he sort of smells a rat, and he investigates, and he goes and asks around, and he says, hey, native people of Hawaii, do you want this annexation? And they say no. Um, so the treaty is stopped. There is no annexation until 1898, um, when the United States does eventually annex it. A sad detail of this is that the queen, whose name starts with L, is not allowed back into Hawaii, which is sad. Let's talk Cuba. Um, Spain is misgoverning the crap out of it at the moment, or at the moment, by the moment, I mean early 1900s, late 1800s. So there's sort of this revolution um, due to the economic problems from the tariff of 1894 that has crippled the sugar markets. Maybe the McKinley tariff was 1894. Let me me check on that. Okay, so the McKinley tariff was actually 1890, interestingly. So just mark that down. So Cuba rises up after the tariff of 94, different tariff, cripples their sugar market. Um, The United States decides to use these scorched earth tactics to get the Spanish out of their area. The United States is fighting on the Cuban side in this fight on the answer, which is what the Cuban fighters are called, are using a tactic that can best be described as fire and fury. Um, The United States is fighting on the Cuban side, because they have a large monetary stake. They have a 50 million capital stake in Cuba. They have a 100 million stake in trade, which also is a question of if we can control Cuba, or if Cuba can be independent and be friends with us, um, we can control the Panama Canal. And if we can control the Panama Canal, we can control the Gulf of Mexico. So the United States goes, and they fight for Cuba. Um, The Spanish general... Okay... Butcher. Butcher is the word I was looking for. Uh, Butcher Whaler um, puts Cubans into concentration camps. A lot of them die. There's this yellow journalism uh, that we were talking about where you're making up stories, and they go and cover it, and they sometimes fabricate news, and they say all these horrible things are happening to Cubans and Americans in Cuba. Um, Hearst, a journalist, uh, publishes the Spanish minister to the United States' letter that's very anti-McKinley. Uh, so the United States sends a ship, the Maine, to Cuba, and then it explodes, literally speaking. 200 soldiers, and by soldiers, I mean seamen, die in an explosion. They blame the Spanish incorrectly. Um, they don't tell anyone until 1970 that they knew they were wrong, but they knew they were wrong from pretty much the get-go. And in 1898, the Spanish say, we will have an armistice. We will close our concentration camps. We will do everything that you have demanded. Um, The United States, though, says, wait a minute, that leaves Cuba as completely independent. Teddy Roosevelt, who is the assistant secretary of the Navy, says, what are we doing by waiting? Let's get on with this. Let's fight the Spanish. Let's get going. McKinley is wondering, are the Spanish actually going to keep this promise? Um, Will the Democrats use this? against me in the election. And I know we're jumping around president to president right now. I mean, there's sort of like the, you know, there's there's a revolving door right now, but these presidents are called the forgettable presidents for a reason. You don't really need to worry about it. Um, 
McKinley then sends a war message to Congress saying, you know what, we got to free these oppressed Cubans. We can't let the Spanish keep holding the Cubans. That's the key message here in this armistice. The Spanish were going to continue to hold Cuba. Um, Congress agrees with McKinley's standpoint, and he declares war, uh, and Congress declares war, um, which I suppose is all male, so he works too. Then comes the Teller Amendment, which was, okay, if we do free Cuba, we have to keep it free. We can't just take it and then be like, actually, Cuba's ours now, which they do with Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Um, so lucky for Cuba. Um, the U.S. is at war with Cuba, and Teddy Roosevelt commands George Dewey, who is in Hong Kong, to go to the Philippines, which the Spanish hold McKinley though he didn't authorize this, says, you know what, that's not a bad idea. So Dewey takes six warships into Manila. He destroys the entire Spanish fleet, kills 400 Spanish. Not a single U.S. soldier dies. The United States does not have enough troops to make a ground invasion of Manila, though. So Germany is coming in to back up Spain very quickly. So there's this awkward period of waiting. Um, and the U.S. is sort of just sitting there like, does anyone want to come help us, or are we just going to be surrounded by more Germans? Finally, reinforcements come. Um, Filipinos help them on their side, and they go and win in Manila and the Philippines, which then raises the focus on Hawaii because they need it as a station to get to the Philippines. And also, there's this question of what if Japan sneaks in right now while we're distracted with the Spanish? So the United States then goes and annexes Hawaii, in 1898, gives them their full rights. There is this question about the Philippines and what in the world they're going to do with it. Back to Cuba. We're, we're jumping all around the globe right now. The Spanish send reinforcements to Cuba. They all suck, but the eastern coast of the United States is like, what the hell? This is the closest any foreign troops have been to us since 1812. So then they go and blockade Cuba at Santiago Harbor. They send this army that's really overdressed and really hot all the time. And I'm not talking hot, I'm talking like overly warm. Um, and they send this army to come from the rear to drive the Spanish out. Teddy Roosevelt comes with his crew of Rough Riders, which are basically cowboys. Um, and by June, 17,000 Americans head out from Tampa to go to Cuba. Uh, the fight really begins on July 1st. Uh, some major battle points, El Cane, Kettle Hill, where they're big battles. The Rough Riders take some serious losses. Uh, on July 3rd, the Spanish fleet is completely ambushed. Um, the U.S. says quickly, while we're fighting this war, let's go get Puerto Rico, which is right next to us, Puerto Rico, um, if you want to say it correctly. On August 12th, the war basically ends with an armistice. If the Spanish had waited, they could have won the war because disease killed about 5,000 American troops. So if they had just waited long enough, they could have actually gotten a win because so many Americans were dying, it wouldn't have been feasible for them to stay there. So everyone heads to Paris in late 1898. Uh, Cuba is freed. Guam, which is really important these days. Puerto Rico head to the United States. Neither of them are promised statehood, which is really one of the first times that has happened. Uh, McKinley does not want to give the Philippines back because he is worried about sort of the what happens to these people if the Spanish hold on to control after we freed the rest. What's the precedent we're sending here? Um, there's also the question of, is it going to descend into anarchy? What if the Germans and Japanese come and take it? Um, then that could lead to a major war. So he says, you know what, we're going to take the Philippines now, and then we will free it later. 
the missionaries are very excited about this. Mrs. McKinley is very excited about this. Wall Street loves it. Uh, McKinley said he heard a divine voice, which is maybe something that happened. Not going to totally question it. Um, so McKinley says, okay, we'll take this armistice and we will pay $20 million for the islands. Um, the Spanish say, okay, fine, whatever. This leads to some questions from America's citizens regarding this isn't really anything remotely close to us. This isn't even Hawaii. There's no sense of contiguous to contiguousness. There's no one who speaks English. We can't really make them a state. Um, and the Anti-Imperial League strikes up or pops up, the Anti-Imperialist League. Uh, they say basically the Filipinos deserve freedom. And what about this consent of the governed idea that's very prominent in the Constitution? And also what about the precedent this is sending for precedence is setting for future escapades the civilizers though which are the people that want to go to the philippines and christianize they went out um and it's also the united states because they're very strong they have to help the lesser the senate agrees by one vote so this was not a overwhelming this is an overwhelming agreement puerto rico puerto rico is not independent it is not a state or a territory the Foraker Act in 1900 allows them a limited government, and they'll be citizens by 1917. The U.S. does improve it, but Puerto Rico wants independence. In the meantime, a lot of Puerto Rican citizens move to New York City. Um, in Cuba, the United States installs basically a military government that also cleans things up and improves. They find that the mosquitoes are the things that have been causing yellow fever, and they upend that. They leave in 1902, but first they draw something up called the Platt Amendment which is basically you have to write your own constitution that is super favorable to the United States. Um, so they don't want them to have debt beyond their resources. The United States does not want Cuba to have debt beyond their resources. So they basically say, your coal and your naval resources are ours, um, including Guantanamo Bay. Cuba says we wanted to be able to write our own treaties, which the Platt Amendment does not allow for. In Puerto Rico... This question pops up of, does the Constitution apply to this new territory? So the insular cases say the Constitution isn't necessarily in full effect in new territory. Um, you can rule without giving full rights, which is interesting and probably not what people were thinking about when they got Puerto Rico. So the Spanish-American War was pretty short, but it turned the United States into this huge world power. They increased their prestige. The United, the United, keeps wanting to say the United Europe. Europe um, sees them as very important. John Philip Sousa writes some songs. Uh, the United States builds up their navy even more, their armed forces soon. The northern-southern divides from the Civil War are basically forgotten. Even a former Confederate general gets command. Again, not necessarily a good thing. This is going to have a later price, though. Like, all this new land, all this, all these imperialist tendencies, this is going to hurt later on. So, throwing it all the way across the word to the Philippines, um, the Filipinos are like, hey, can we have some freedom, please? And the United States says, it's going to be a fresh no from me, dog. Um, Emilio Aguinaldo leads a revolt. And 126,000... American troops go fight. Uh, the Filipino enemies are using guerrilla tactics. There's 
essentially what is a glorified race war. There are concentration camps. It all ends when Aguinaldo is captured. Uh, 4,000 Americans in the fight die. In the Philippines, 200,000 Filipinos die, which is insane. Um, Taft, who we'll hear a lot more about later, becomes the civil governor of the Philippines uh, and he improves domestic ties to the United States. He improves schools. He spends millions of dollars. In the long run, both sides don't really see a benefit to the U.S.-Filipino relationship. On July 4th, 1946, the Filipinos are freed. Looking in China, the Russians and the Germans uh, had taken a lot of economic influence from the Manchurian government, and the United States is very worried about its missionaries and its merchants. The British are also like, hey, um, these other countries are getting some influence in China. Can we please have some influence in China and the United States? Do something. So Secretary of State John Hay writes this door note, and the door is open. It is the open door note, basically saying, you need to respect the rights of the Chinese. You need to fairly compensate them for what you're taking. Everyone but the Russians agree. The Chinese don't like being a door or even a doormat. Um, and so what happens next is called the Boxer Rebellion, where these Chinese fighters called boxers attack about 100 foreigners, thousands of Chinese Christians. Uh, they raid the diplomatic capital, which is Beijing. It is not a good look really for anyone, but it's very understandable. It's 18,000 people, and it's a multinational force, if that tells you anything. The United States sends some Filipino troops to protect the Treaty of Wangha, um, and then they also go and charge the Chinese around 333 million, 18.5 million of which gets taken away for an exchange student program. Hay is sort of like, we need to just stop pretending like we own China. China is its own place. Um, you need to leave it alone. Leave Britain alone. So in 1900, McKinley is renominated. Um, New York bosses are sick of Teddy Roosevelt, and they put him up for vice president. The Democrats nominate William Jennings Bryan for the second time. They'll do it again later, who's an anti-imperialist, thinks we're enslaving the Filipinos. Teddy Roosevelt goes on a cowboy tour where he puts on his fancy cowboy boots and... Uh, Wins uh, helps McKinley win the election, who wins by 1 million votes and 140 electoral votes. It wasn't really a mandate regarding imperialism, just sort of stuff about money and protectionism. Sorry about those keyboard noises. Anchor decided to act up. Anchor being the app I recorded this podcast on. Uh, what I was looking up was the DJ Airhorn sound effect because on September the 1st, William McKinley was assassinated, which means Teddy Roosevelt takes the oath of office age 42, the youngest ever to take the oath of office, meaning we have a new president. Okay, that's, that's what I was looking up. Um... Teddy Roosevelt is bellicose. He is pro-preparedness. He has this nice saying, speak softly, carry a big stick. He's not really concerned with checks and balances. Um, basically, with the Constitution, you're good if it doesn't expressly prohibit it, which is an interesting strategy. Doesn't work out badly for him, just not a traditional one. He has a huge, huge following of... Him. He's, it's got the cult of personality thing going on. Speaking of things that are constitutionally 
iffy. In the Spanish War, um, there are some questions raised about a Central American canal because ships that were on the Pacific take about six weeks to get from there to Cuba, which is a really long time, but you got to go around all of South America, so it makes sense. Um, also questions about mobility and strength and Pacific defense. Um, there are some legal obstacles, though, before the U.S. goes and builds a canal. For instance, the United States can't own a canal per the Clayton-Butler Treaty that the United States and the British signed a while back. Um, the British then go and sign the Hay-Pontsfeld, Hay-something treaty in 1901 that basically says the United States can build a canal. We don't really care. The French Canal Company uh, says to the United States, hey, use Panama. Uh, Congress says, okay, sure, in 1902. Colombia, though, owns this Panamanian land, um, and they reject a United States offer for $10 million and $250,000 a year. Uh, for about a six-mile span, the Panamanians will really want this money that's going to come from this canal, and they revolt. Um, they rebel in November 1903. The United States Navy keeps the Colombians away from the land. Teddy Roosevelt quickly recognizes the new government, and they sign the Habunao Vernvirilla Treaty. The United States' relations with Latin America go way down, but they do build a canal. Uh, they start in 1904. They finish in 1914. It costs about $400 million. So a lot of Latin American countries are also defaulting on debt at this time. Um, Teddy Roosevelt doesn't want the Europeans collecting the debt and the Latin American nations being subservient to Europe. So in 1905... He instills the bad neighbor policy, which is basically the United States controls the Dominican Republic's tariff, and they come up with this idea of preventative intervention, where it's the Roosevelt corollary that the United States will step in and pay your debt because only we can push you around. The Latin Americans are pissed. Cuba revolts. The Marines suppress it. This all happened in 1906, that last little part. Meanwhile, uh, the Russians and the Japanese uh, go to war. Teddy Roosevelt tries to be a statesman. The Russians want Manchuria. The Japan don't want them to have it, so they attack. They kick their butt at Port Arthur. But Japan then runs out of men and money, so they ask Teddy to have brokers in peace. Um, Teddy Roosevelt likes the Tsar. He wants to keep him in power, the Tsar of Russia, so he's sort of got a little bit of a bias here. So they all meet in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a lovely town right on the coast of Maine and the Atlantic. Beautiful place to go kayaking and canoeing, uh, and they come up with this neutral settlement, which angers Japan because they thought they had won, and they only get money and Korea, whereas Russia just has to leave Manchuria alone. Teddy Roosevelt, though, gets the Nobel Prize, Nobel Peace Prize. The Russians and the Japanese both hate the United States. The United States isn't really happy with either country because Japan keeps improving their world status, and the Russians are treating the Jewish people of their country very poorly. Some Japanese people are restless, and they go and leave for California, which angers the whites, as change often does. Uh, in 1906, a San Francisco school board segregates the Asians out of the school system, or into a separate school system, I guess. The Japanese are angry. Uh, there's sort of a war in the press. Teddy Roosevelt gets the board to come to the White House. They repeal the segregation, but behind the Behind the back, they sort of have a gentleman's agreement with the Japanese that they're not going to send any more immigrants to the United States. 
the United States then to sort of go boost its, I don't want to say status, but, you know, they want to boost their public image. They go send 16 battleships around the world to go seem strong and important. The Japanese greet them really nicely. They have all these children to sing the Star Spangled Banner. It's emotional. It's moving. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and it leads to the root Takahira agreement where both sides will respect each other's specific holdings and they will respect the open door in China. Okay. That is chapter 27. Basically, a lot of Latin American, Japanese, Russian dealings. The United States tries to expand to the Philippines. What kind of works? Unclear. That's really what you got enough from that chapter. That was chapter 27. I already said that. Is that it? I think that is it. All right. We will see you very shortly for chapter 28. It is a departure here on Pushing the A. Pushing the A is brought to you by Yellow Spatula. Yellow Spatula, for when you need a spatula that makes you feel certain things regarding your visual input sources. By Expo Markers, in case you need to expose a marker at an expo. By Generic Water Glass. That's some water. This is pushing the A.